So thank you for listening to a Corny and Barrow podcast. We are talking today to Robert Dugan from La Pera in the Languedoc. Robert, thank you so much for coming in. You've been spending an entire day with Corny and Barrow. So I, uh, I hope you're not too uh, fatigued by the, uh, the presence of the CMB team and customers and the whole experience. But uh, we've managed to grab you for a quick half hour conversation. And I just wanted to do a little bit of an overview of this really, really exciting new relationship. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Guy, for speaking to me I'm, i hope i'm invigorated and not exhausted good well uh, you, you look you look it to me so that's uh, that's a good that's start that's very kind that's very kind of you I, i'm sure you just say that to all your uh, not at all not <laughs> right so la pera was a place that you fell in love with and there is a great story behind it i wonder if you could just start by giving us a synopsis of the way you came to find this this amazing piece of land well, my wife was born in the main town of uh, Montpellier. She was born there because her parents went to study, or her father at least, went to study medicine. And that, this is one of the oldest in, in France. Montpellier is in southern France. It's one of the oldest faculties of medicine in uh, France and one of the oldest in Europe and the world. And he, her father was studying there when she was born in Montpellier. And he used to go up to the, the cooperative in his summer holidays in St. George Dork, which was a, a, a wine cooperative. Cooperatives being, of course, whenever it clubs together vineyards to get the wines vinified and to, to sell them together which was a very sort of old notion and it still goes on very successfully. And he would, he would go in his summer holidays to pick grapes and to help out there. And so she was born in Montpellier. And when I met her, I once was heading off to France and I said, I don't know quite where I'm going. And she said, oh, you're going to the region of my birth. This is, I was born in Montpellier and you're going to the region that I was born in. And so immediately I went and as many customers and many people who work in, in wine or interested in wine, you always think, well, there's a region and I don't know anything about it. Where is it located? It's in Italy. I can't position it on a map. And so for me, that was my key. My wife was born in this region. And that inspired me when I went out there because everything I saw, I thought, well, this is kind of, I have a real connection. And it was just during that period that the wine was experiencing what started in the 1970s, which is a huge renaissance of red wines predominantly in southern France. And this began with people like Aimé Gilbert, Trevelon, and, and uh, Olivier Julien, which is in the village near we work in. And, and this happened in Agnan, in some areas of Provence, but mostly in the Aero region where she was born. And so I suddenly got caught up in this hugely exciting historic development, which is one region of France, which was not renowned for high quality, excellent wines, suddenly was going through this transformation. And so in, in a sort of foolish way, I got carried along with great enthusiasm and wanted to discover. Also, it's one of the most disregarded culturally regions of France, because France and the Occitan area, which is now one country, were at war with each other or were opposing. And, and when the Occitan area lost that political or uh, geographical battle, the culture became a little bit derided. So this all appealed to me and intrigued me. And very soon I discovered a wonderful vineyard near Jonquière, which is epicenter of the Languedoc, sorry, let's say the Aero or the Southern France wine uh, revolution and a wonderful vineyard. And I thought this is a great opportunity of a lifetime. And I would like to show that this region is capable of true excellence, 
not just in terms of wine, but just to fly a flag for the region where my wife was born. Fantastic. That encapsulates it pretty well. Um, could we maybe just take a step back and talk about your background and where you came from and what your life looked like pre-wine? Well, I was almost born, if my wife and her parents had dug a hole from where she was born in Montpellier, like right to the core of the earth, I was born on the other side of the world and grew up outside of uh, London or, or, or England or Britain and certainly outside of France. And um, so I came to London when I was maybe 18 or 19. And I previously I'd done appallingly badly at school. I was regarded as the family and perhaps the village dance. And so I went off to study acting and I had my heart broken and I made a mess of that. And I turned to alcohol very briefly, just, just to, you know, bottles of whiskey or something, just to cope with that. And eventually started writing songs because I always had a great interest in that and came to London. But really before I even started to earn money writing songs, I came to London and I started to set up as a dishwasher. That was my trade. And perhaps that's been my most successful trade to date. But as a dishwasher and then occasionally as a waiter and various things like that. In the evening, I used to write songs and write music because that was another great love of mine, as well as acting in the theatre, which, of course, London is a great centre for acting in the theatre. And all my school days were spent reading about the London theatre, the old Vic, uh, Ralph Richardson, John Gilgoods, uh, Laurence Olivier. These were my great heroes. But, of course, I came to London in the 90s and it wasn't quite 1930s as, you know, and, and things had changed. So I also loved writing songs. So I eventually became slightly adept at writing songs and had some success. And you could almost say that La Pera was bought for a song. And, and that's how, how it developed. And that's how I sort of made my way through the world because the transition from um, dishwashing in cafes to to running or owning a wine domain just needed a little bit of in-between time to, to make sense of it. But so my, my experiences from Australia, I grew up singing Jerusalem in chapel every morning and singing about England's green and pleasant lands, whereas outside it was droughts and uh, hugely hot days. So I almost lived in two realities. One, the reality of a bunch of boys singing about England and Jerusalem, which is an imaginative reality almost, because none of us had ever seen England. And then the real reality of, of, of my life there. But so, so perhaps that informed the fact that I can work in France in a way, because I've always had this dual thing. You know, we always sort of felt that England was a place we knew, but we knew nothing about it. So eventually, when I was 18, 19, I came to London. I love England and London. And, and that's how my life progressed. Yeah. And that's how I came into contact with working in Europe. Okay, so it's that that makes great sense in terms of as a young boy in Australia growing up, you had this real image of England and uh, all things English. But I guess at the yeah. same time, you didn't have that same image of France. And it's still a leap to go from the world of London, dishwashing music, you know, a successful career in London to, to, to then make that leap to the Languedoc. So, so what was the link there? I suppose making the leap to London was hard enough because really um, I remember walking home one evening and thinking, I have a key to my door, but I know no one in this city. And if I lose this key, I have no one to call on. So really, I was used to being a stranger and I was used to um, being away from home. So for me to be a stranger in France and to be away from home in France was almost the same as being a stranger in London and away from home and without that network or support. Uh, so I sort of felt very comfortable with that, really. Also, one of the great gifts in life, if you're not a success at school, is you're sort of on the run as a sort of um, ne'er-do-well from a very early age. And you've got maybe 20 years of being a ne'er-do-well and on the run and trying to cobble together excuses and things. 
So that I felt that sort of equipped me with a bit of a spine, I'd like to think, when it came to dealing with uh, difficulties in France or just tackling a, a situation that I was not really familiar with. And frankly, potentially could have gone quite badly, let's face it. Okay, well, I think we can agree it turned out quite well. So um, moving yes. on, if I may, let's um, have a little talk and overview of the Terrasse du Lazac, this amazing corner of southern France that you have set up base in. Can you give us a little overview of the history of the, the area itself and your specific vineyard? Yes, I can, which is, it's on the cusp of where the great sort of the Mediterranean, you have the Mediterranean, and then the great ascents, you have the plains, and then the ascent up to the massive Centrale. So the Terrace de Lazac is just before the Plateau de Lazac, which is in the foothills of the massive Centrale. So you're starting to experience that huge climb in altitude and what happens they say and i suppose only the wines can really test testify whether this is true or not is that in the evening all the cool air comes down from the, the heights onto where we are which is um in in the foothills itself and that allows for a difference in temperature of daytime to evening which allows the wines to be fresh now this is what they say but the fact is that when you taste the wines from this region and from the terrace de Larzac. They do have a degree of freshness. They have this wonderful ripeness of Syrah, Grenache, Mauverde, great varieties like that. And also Sanso and Carignan, which is fantastic, obviously traditional, more uh, southern French varieties. And um, this lends a freshness to that ripeness. And this is what contributes to the, the fantastic, lovely sort of southern French ripeness with a beautiful freshness. Interestingly enough, just if I may add one thing, which is when I started off, I realized that really we grow our wines on quaternary alluvia, which is combed under the massive, from the massive central during the, the Ice Age and, and, and that huge uh, transportation of water. And on the other side, uh, and we, we have the Aero River, and the other side of the massive central, you have the Gironde River, and you have the Bordeaux region, and you have the Medoc, and that is quaternary alluvia on the other side. So in, almost when we started off, I thought, well, why if you can grow wonderful Cabernet Sauvignon and Merlot on the border side on Quaternary Alluvia, which is all soils created during the same period, and that's a slightly more continental climate, why can't you make absolutely the same quality wines on Quaternary Alluvia on this side, the Mediterranean side of the massive central, on the same Quaternary Alluvia with Syrah, Grenache, and Mauverde, Carignan, so other wonderful grape varieties. And so that was really the feeling. Instinctively, I thought, well, this, is, this almost makes sense. Now, that's just a theory. The great thing about the Terrace de Larzac is it is, as I said, the epicenter of the, the wine, the Southern French wine revolution, which happened in the 70s. Uh, this inspired people like Mondavi to, to make what he, I think he referred to as a, a great growth or a first growth or something, you know, in, 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 in the, the scrublands around Anyan. And very interestingly, um, uh, after about six years, I think Andrew Jefford wrote an article in the Financial Times saying, really, um, this didn't happen. Finally, that didn't happen. The locals did not want an American coming, um, planting um, and, and doing this in, in, in that region. There was a protest. But in our own little modest way, um, Andrew Jefford wrote a lovely article in the Financial Times saying, well, really, this has is, is, is kind of taken place, but on a much smaller scale, and, um, and not new vineyards on scrubland with Cabernet Sauvignon or imported grape varieties, but just local varieties that were planted 30 or 40 years before we even arrived. Um, and, and really, that's Andrew Jefford described where we are as the tenderloin of the Cherestal Arzac. Um, so it's, it's, it's quite flat, 
it's not it's not great hugely tilted or um, on the hillside but as he describes the tenderloin it just makes wines of wonderful balance and uh, richness uh, lovely tannic force but you know round tannins and so it's it's quite a special area. and are you doing something different or unique um if if somebody said you what what is your usp i mean is is there something about la pera which makes it significantly different from what your neighbors are doing um I think the only thought is that I had at the beginning was I did not care about the result. And I think that maybe that's not such a terrible approach sometimes. Let's take it from school, university. You think, well, if I study hard, I read all the books, and I just put the, the, the correct input in, then really I should be quite relaxed about the output, you know, and I shouldn't worry about how this is going to express itself too much because that's pointless. But really, if I just do the work, and make it high quality work, then I should just allow whatever it is to be. I think many people come into winemaking or setting up a domain and they have a very preconceived idea of what the result will be. I was almost prepared for the result to be terrible. In our first vintage, the only thing I wanted was vineyard work and viticultural work of a high enough quality to compete with that no other estate in France could reasonably be expected to be doing better. And then excellent work in the vineyard and a normal harvest time. But a normal harvest time in a warmer, slightly region of France is going to result in grapes that are slightly um, higher sugar level and perhaps slightly higher alcohol. And and that would produce complexity and ageability and wonderful complex wines that can increase in expressivity over time. But the danger with that is it may result in a wine that is not balanced. And so really it doesn't become a test of our skill because our aim was just to do excellent quality vineyard work and wonderful vinification, sensible harvest time. It becomes a test of the region. And so my aspect, my perspective, and maybe what makes us different, is my sole reason for doing this is to pay tribute to the site and to pay tribute to the people of the region, who I unfairly felt had been derided and looked down at. And I frankly wanted just to fly a flag for the vineyard for its history and for the region and the people. Which is a great reason to do anything, I guess. I mean, the, the idea that it's not an imposition of ego, it's not something that you're trying to create with a preconceived idea of what you want the outcome to be. It's actually just sort of looking almost with an analytical, respectful eye and saying, well, let's let's amplify what's already there. Let's just translate what is already being given to us by nature. Um, which I think is great. And uh, that certainly was one of the things that appeals to me about the wines. I think there is this honesty and immediacy about them. And they aren't wines that you need to delve deep in order to unpick a sort of philosophy or a mystery. I think they wear their heart on their sleeve in a very lovely way. Yes. So so many people come into winemaking, I imagine, uh, and maybe I'm making a generalization and maybe I'm wrong about this, but they might come into winemaking thinking, I love the wines of the Northern Rhone, or I love Chateauneuf de Pape, or I love um, this great variety. And, and, and they might impose that and say, well, listen, let's make a wine like the wine I love. But really, I don't want to make, I, I n- number one, have quite Catholic taste, so it's not really uh, an issue for me. I, I, I love a great diversity of things, and I'm more interested in the diversity of things and what, what they might bring. But I simply wanted it to express what it was good at, rather than try and make it do something that it was not good at. Um, I, I think there's a great comment, which is life is a lot easier when you're being the best version of yourself that you could be, because really you have a bit of a monopoly in that. And so really when we're coming to doing the best wine that this climate can produce and this soil and this region, that's going to be special. That's going to offer something different 
rather than try and make it fit to my tastes. And I'm just one person. And I, I think it's a very small approach when you're trying to make everything fit to your, your tastes, even including yourself. If you decide to change yourself to be your idea of what you'd like to be, that often doesn't work. Do you know, it doesn't come naturally. And sometimes you just have to play the cards that really are your strong suits, which obviously are mine, <laughs> whether it's Poyak or the Terrace de Larzac or it's Hermitage is going to be the uniqueness of that of that appellation. Yeah. Um, I mean, setting up any new enterprise, any new undertaking is rife with challenges and obstacles. If you think back to the early days, I think 2005 was your first vintage, pretty much. W- what from then onwards was the what was the biggest impediment or challenge that you came across? Uh, I have to confess, it has been a challenging um operation. It, it's not my, I, I did not come to the, the project or to the, the owning the wine domain with a huge amount of experience. Now, that's all right, because you can read books and, and then you can grab a great team. The challenge is doing it for the first time. There's a lot to lose. In fact, every vintage, and let's face it, it's a bit like being a gladiator. There's not a huge amount to gain. You're not going to make trillions or millions or billions, you know, with a successful vintage. But you always have, potentially, the danger of hail, the danger of rained out vintages, perhaps even in, in southern France, sometimes the danger of fire. So you all have a sort of catastrophic dangers without huge financial rewards or huge, or huge rewards other than personal rewards to, to combat that. And, and so any vintage can knock you out, but no vintage, but you're going to need to do 20, 30, 40, 50 vintages to really achieve your goal. So it's, it's a bit of a high danger game. And certainly I remember, to give you an example, I, I, I am slightly reckless. In our first vintage, we had worked the, the vineyards to an exceptional level of care and attention, which makes us sound hugely responsible. But at the same time, 90 days before harvest, we did not have a, a building to vinify the wines in. We did not have any tanks. We did not have any equipment. We did not have a tractor. And we did not have anything, really which sounds slightly less sensible. But we had faith that these things would fall into place, and they did fall into place. But often I feel like these, there's so many dangers, I feel like we have been sort of rescued from ourselves and fate by some invisible hand that steps in to make everything go well. But the the real challenge is to achieve the goal, which is to show something special in wine that can be achieved in this southern French climate that brings a totally different aesthetic and um, a totally different feeling than another region and that people can turn to and say, at this moment, at this time of day, when I'm in this frame of mind, with this type of food, this is my perfect wine. And and it's something different. I can feel there's a real connection to place. There's a connection to history. There's a connection to citing these wines and this vineyard in their proper context. Which, which I like and which I think um, is what, at the end of the day, wine should be about. It's not something that exists in isolation. It's something which is very much part of its surroundings. Yes, yes. I mean, if I have one regret is when you're on a bit of a mission, you're not in the mind frame to relax and to enjoy the time you have, to spend time with people. And I sometimes feel like the journey since 2004 until now, which of course has embraced the wonderful period of the financial crisis in 2008 and delightful COVID period, which was a joy. You know, I sometimes feel like it has been a roller coaster. And I only wish looking back that I could have taken a little more time to enjoy things. But really, we, we did this 
And my nature as a person is to do things as a mission. So that has been our approach so far. So looking to the future in that case, what, um, what's next for La Pera? Is this a, the beginning of a period of, of stability, of consolidation, or do you have amazing new plans for the future? Um, it was the wonderful Greek lady from Chateau Margo who said, owning a wine domain is very easy. It's just the first hundred years that is terribly hard. We're now just approaching our sort of quarter of the way through that, and not, not quite. So I imagine we've got 75 years of not easy coasting along. My ambition is always the same every year, and I never approach it in a relaxed way, which is this year, the vineyard work has to be better than ever before. And oddly enough, that was what I was saying in the first year. So, so every year, I feel like we can't rest on our laurels. We don't know what the weather's going to bring. It could bring something wonderful, something extraordinary weather. And if we're not prepared to do our best in the vineyards in a way that excels, even improves on what we've done before, then we're not really in the running. So I feel like we're starting again from scratch at preschool every single year. And you know, I, I feel like we're starting again on the race. So every year is a race, and every year we start again on the race. Mm -hmm. And really what we did last year doesn't matter. It's what we did this year that matters. So in a sense, it's a Sisyphean, if that's the correct pronunciation, it's a task that Sisyphean would, would, would understand of rolling that rock back up the hill every vintage to try and... And you think, well, once I get up to the top, but I suppose in life that's never really happens. You may go to the gym for six months and then you think, well, I've achieved this all. But, you know, if you stop after that, it's, you, you just can't rest there. So really every year is, is this great challenge to try and keep standards high. And I think that's the same in many professions. I remember reading about a certain restaurateur in America who used to just turn up every day and it's the same. He'd say, no, the life needs to be in line with this. And he used to get quite annoyed at doing that because he'd always new people working at the thing. And they were wonderful people, but he always noticed things that were incorrect until he realized that this was actually his life. And it was a real joy to be committed to excellence and just walk in and calmly, but not annoyed as he had been previously, and just say, do you know why we put the fork here and, and keep it in line? So really, I have that commitment to excellence, and I feel like it's a never-ending process, and mostly it's the vineyard work. Mm. And there's always new challenges, but I would love it. I always have thought, wouldn't it be lovely to have a period of, of blissful sort of uh, relaxation where you're coasting along? And I think it happens after that 100 year period, so I'm not sure I'm going to see it in. But there was a great line in that Orson Welles film. I think it's, um, I can't remember what it's called, but it's in, in Italy in the, with the Borgias. They had like blood revolution and murder and 100 years of that, and they produced the Renaissance. Whereas in Italy, they had 100 years of peace and they produced... <laughs> So Switzerland, they had 100 years of peace and they produced the cuckoo clock. So, so I <laughs> feel like it, often, you know, it's the grit in the oyster that makes the pearl. Well, 75 more years of pushing that boulder uphill and uh, we, will, uh, we will be behind you every step of the way. And uh, hopefully it will produce some amazing vintages along the way as well. Lovely. So one other interesting point is the success and the perhaps um, undiscovered specialness of the white wine varieties in the Terras de Lazac. This is a region which is known for its Syrah, its Morvedre, its Grenache. The success of the whites is something of a revelation. Can you speak a little bit about that? Well, there's two perspectives on the whites that you could take. The first is that, and it's only one thing that I've, we've discovered over time, which is when we were reading, which is this is the oldest white wine region of France. As Hugh Johnson says he, in the story of wine, which is a fabulous book, which I really recommend, these are the oldest extensive vineyards in France that we know of. 
And just next to La Pera, you have France's oldest known winery. And that was dedicated to growing white wines. And the seeds discovered there in the archaeological site, it was about four or five hectares, I think. And it was Roman legionnaire uh, claret seeds. And that lies in the claret appellation, which is one of southern France's, I think, perhaps oldest white wine appellations. And La Pera also lies in that appellation, which is just next to France's oldest winery. So there's this huge history going back nearly 2,000 years or more of white wine growing. And it, when you come to Pliny the Older, and that is, I think, just after the birth of Christ, you know, 50, 70 years after the birth of Christ, he writes, it's the first time in literature where you have set down that certain wines from France at that period have merit. And he cites wines near the Bézier and along the banks of the River Aero, which is where we are, as being white wines that are exceptional. Now, their idea of exceptional wines is very different than ours. And then also cites the wines near Vienne, which is near the Northern Rhone, as being exceptional. I'm not sure if they were white or red, because pretty much all Roman wines, the dominance was white at the time. Then there's also in Rome, just outside of Rome, there's uh, the oldest known dolea or amphora, small amphora, with wines imported from Bézier to Rome, saying, I am a white wine of Bézier. So this huge history of white wine that is not known and we didn't know about. And when we first acquired the vines that we began to work with, we believed they were all red wines. And certainly the focus in the region at the time was on red wines and producing fabulous red wines. But one day we were walking very early on into a, one of the younger Syrah plots, and we discovered three rows of white grape varieties that no one had mentioned. And they were Viognier, the fantastic Viognier from Congio and everywhere, and uh, Rousson. And we started making white wines with that, and they turned out to be quite long-lived. Recently, I think Jancis Robinson reviewed a 2008 vintage back in 2020 or 21, saying it was youthful and uh, wonderful wine and really indicated wonderfully for the white wines of a region. So... You know, we started making and planting white grape varieties. And so it's been a great pleasure, such as Roussin, Marsan, fabulous Hermitage grape varieties. Clairette, of course, because we're in the Clairette Appellation, Grenache Blanc. And uh, it's been a great journey, the white wines of La Pera, and to really reconnect with that, that heritage, which I have to confess, when we uh, first started, we were blissfully unaware of. Brilliant. So after those 75 uh, years of, uh, of pushing that boulder uphill, we, we will uh, be enjoying some good vintages along the way, I have no doubt. And I know we could continue discussing these bits and pieces for hours, and I think maybe it would be a great idea to do a second podcast at some stage. I think it would be fun to, uh, to continue discussing some of these things and maybe delve a little bit deeper into the vineyard and into the, the appellation. But Robert, as a, as a starting point, that was fantastic. So thank you very much. Well, thank you so much, Guy. It's a great pleasure to speak to you. And it's a great pleasure to show these ones today with Corny and Burrow, which is obviously sets a certain standard of excellence in itself. Mm-hmm.